bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In today's broadcast, we shall be discussing the significance of baptism. So far, looking at the doctrine of baptism, which we began in the last broadcast, as we looked at washings, purifications, and baptisms, we have seen that the word translated baptism in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 means washing or purification, as some of the first century Jewish Christians may have supposed. But that is not what the Bible teaches about New Testament baptism of the saints of God. We also have seen that John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance, and it is not the same thing as the New Testament baptism. Indeed, John's baptism prepared the hearts of the people to receive, that is, to welcome and accept the Messiah, through repentance. John's baptism was also designed by God for the positive and definitive identification of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this broadcast, we shall begin to see what baptism is about and why we are to be thus baptized. Let us begin by understanding the root meaning or what is called the etymology of the word baptism. Baptism, that word, originates from the Greek word baptizo and that and it means to dip to immerse or to submerge a variant of baptizo spelled b-a-p-t-i-z-o is bapto which is spelled b-a-p-t-o and it is used to describe baptizo without the ritual or theological significance i'll explain it as we look at some scriptures in luke chapter 16 verse 24 luke 16 verse 24 the bible says then he cried and said, speaking here of the rich man and Lazarus, the story that the Lord Jesus Christ told. And now the he here is referring to the rich man. And he, that is the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The word dip there is bapto because it doesn't carry the scriptural signals of baptizo. That's why it is bapto. And it just simply means dip. Then in John chapter 13, verse 26, John 13, verse 26, the Bible says, Jesus answered, this was at the Last Supper. There was this question as to who would betray the Lord and the Lord Jesus was telling John something. And this is what the Lord was saying to John. When John asked, who is it? And the Lord said, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So the word dip there again is back to carrying the connotation of baptism, but not the spiritual or scriptural significance. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, Revelation 19, verse 13, it is about the Lord Jesus Christ being described as his return to the earth. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There's something that is worth noting in all that we have seen, that the item that is dipped changes in its identity. For example, if Lazarus had dipped his finger into the water. His finger would have become a wet finger or a finger dripping with water sufficient to send a drop to quench the thirst of the rich man in hell. Then when you look at the piece of bread, it's possible that the Lord was going to dip it in humus, the mixture of lentils and olive oil and some things, or it might have been stew or something. By the time he had dipped the bread into that mixture, the bread would have been smeared with the stew or the humus. So it would no longer be ordinary bread, but it would be bread smeared or soaked in stew or humus. 
And then the robe, let's assume it was a white robe, would now have taken on the identity of a bloody robe. It's important to know that once you dip something into another thing, the thing you dipped into that thing takes on a new identity, usually identifiable with what you have dipped it into, as in the finger in water, the bread in the humus, or the robe in blood. In relation to Christ, who is the essence of scriptural baptism, the believer engages in or is brought into a spiritual reality by a physical demonstration of being dipped, immersed, or submerged in water. When we talk of baptism in the sense of Christ, there is something of a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality that is taking place and it is demonstrated by that physical act of dipping that person into maybe water, in the case of water baptism. And it is that spiritual truth that we want to examine in our broadcast today. As we noted earlier, Christian baptism is not the same as the Jewish washing or purification rites. Neither is it an act of washing away sin, nor is it an act of repentance. Indeed, before a Christian is baptized, he would have repented of sin. He would have been washed or cleansed from his sins. The Bible talks about the washing of the water of the word. And then it talks about the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. That is not baptism. He would have had a good or clear conscience before God. He would have been relieved of the guilt of sin. He would not have the guilt of sin. And he would have had the knowledge, therefore, that he has been forgiven already. So he's not going to his baptism seeking forgiveness. He's going to the baptism for something else. It is only after all these things that the Christian is baptized. So if baptism is not cleansing from sin, if baptism is not repentance, is not purification, what then is baptism about? We want to look at the significance of Christian baptism. For that, I'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the NKJV, and I'll read it in some other translations. 1 Corinthians 10. Let me just read verse 1 and 2, even though it's verse 2 we really want to focus on. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is the NKJV. Let me read it from the Amplified, the Amplified translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that our forefathers were all under and protected by the cloud in which God's presence went before them, and every one of them passed safely through the Red Sea. And each one of them allowed himself also to be baptized into Moses in the cloud. And in the sea, they were those brought under obligation to the law, to Moses and to the covenant, consecrated and set apart to the service of God. The Amplified amplifies what the NKJV is saying by saying that, look, what happened when Israel left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea can be likened to what baptism is about. And here he's saying that their baptism was that they now went under the authority or leadership of Moses. They had to submit themselves by that act to the law and to the service of God in consecration and to the covenant that God had brought in. The Living Bible puts it this way, for we must never forget, dear brethren, what happened to our people in the wilderness long ago. God guided them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them and 
he brought them all surely through the waters of the Red Sea. This might be called their baptism, baptized both in sea and cloud. As followers of Moses, their commitment to him as their leader. So we begin to see or have an idea of what the significance of baptism is. From these translations, we can note the following, that one, baptism signifies our willingness to be led by Christ henceforth. As they submitted themselves to the authority of Moses, even though they rebelled a number of times, but as they submitted themselves to the authority of Moses, here we see the significance of baptism as in our willingness. Note that it is your willingness, you are not compelled, your willingness to submit or to be led by Christ henceforth. In Romans chapter 8 verse 14, the Bible tells us, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So you are not a son of God because you call yourself a son of God. You are a son of God because you are led by the Spirit of God. Suffice to say that the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. In verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, is the Spirit of God. And Christ is leading us by his Spirit who has been given to us at salvation. When we got born again, the Spirit of God came within us and began to do a work of sanctification, preparing us for service. Some of these things we'll discuss as we go ahead. Secondly, baptism signifies our commitment to Christ as our Lord. You obey a Lord without debate, without question. Your Lord cannot say, do something, and you are arguing with your Lord. There's the signals of baptism. So when you are being baptized, you are making that statement that not only am I going to be led by Christ from now on, I also commit to Christ as my Lord, which means before I listen to self, before I listen to Satan, now I listen only to God and to his word. The problem is many of us go back to listening to men. We go back to listening to people who say they are prophets, people who say they are apostles, or whatever title they call themselves, and we begin to do what they are asking us to do, regardless of whether it is contrary to the word of God. Thirdly, baptism signifies our union with Christ in the same experience of his death and resurrection, and thus we have a new identity, the identity that is in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we, who died to sin, live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Let me even read a little further. It says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is the significance of baptism. We are in union. We are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When we go through baptism, we are experiencing as it were what Christ experienced in his dying, in his burial, and in his resurrection. It continues in verse 8. It says, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ 
having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. In verse 11 says, Likewise, you also reckon, recognize, take cognizance, account, as is used for accounting. Take account of yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it is our union with Christ, having gone through the same experience that he went through when he died and was resurrected. He died to sin and was resurrected alive to serve God eternally. In the same way, when we go through baptism, we are now saying that we are in union with Christ's death and resurrection, which is what baptism speaks about. His death, burial, and resurrection. And that as Christ died on the cross, we also are now dead to sin. We are dead to the world. And we are dead to Satan's authority or Satan's promptings. And we are now alive to righteousness, alive to the kingdom of God, and alive to the authority of God. It's a major statement that we are making when we go through baptism. Finally, baptism signifies our total submission to Christ's authority over us. We don't argue with it. We don't quarrel with it. We know that we are under Christ. We submit willingly, wholeheartedly to him. These are the statements we are making when we talk about baptism. What we are talking about here essentially is Christian baptism or what we call water baptism. But it nonetheless holds the same significance with other baptisms, which we shall be discussing in our next broadcast by the grace of God, or maybe two broadcasts away. It is important to understand that the Christian who goes for baptism must recognize that one, he is saying through his baptism that he is willingly following Christ. He's not compelled to. He's willingly following Christ. Christ is his leader. Secondly, he is saying that he is committed. The Lord Jesus Christ said, no man having put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he is committed and that he is ready to follow and obey him. The third thing, he's talking about his union that he and Christ are together. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you love your father, your, your, your mother, your brother, your sister, so more than you love him, you cannot be his disciple. And then he goes on again to say that if you will not carry your cross, carrying of the cross signifies death. In those days, when you saw a man carrying a cross, you saw a man that was going to his execution because the Roman execution was such that you carried the cross yourself to the place of execution and then they executed you. So that was the significance of what the Lord was saying that you must know that you are a dead man. You are a dead man even though you are moving. You have agreed that they should kill you. I'm told that in the prison system, when a man is condemned to death, when he gets into prison, the first thing they will ask him to do is to sign a document that says that he gives permission to the state to kill him. He must sign that paper. Even his lawyers will advise him that the courts have sentenced you to death, but you must grant the state permission to kill you. So by carrying the cross, we have also granted permission to the world to kill us. We're saying you can kill us because of Christ. That's what we're saying. So it is therefore going to be strange if we who signed that death warrant and approved that the world system can do away with us, should now revolt against the world. No, we will not. Which was why you saw that in the early church, they were glad when they were beaten. They were glad when they were tortured. They rejoiced even when they were being crucified on the cross after the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Stephen when he was being stoned. How he looked up and prayed and said, do not account what they are doing against them. Forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. It was this understanding that they had. And we must get that into our system. That we are united with Christ in death. 
as he was killed, so we also have died. Dead to sin, dead to the world, and dead to Satan. And now as he was raised up, we are raised up to a newness of life. Alive to righteousness. Alive to the kingdom of God. Alive to the authority of God. We are saying henceforth, Lord, we are only interested in your will. We are only interested in what is right. As far as you say it is right. Not what we think to be right. Not what men think to be right. But what you say is right. And finally, we are saying we are totally submitted to Christ's authority over us. Ephesians chapter 5 says wives should submit to their own husbands as the church submits to Christ. Through baptism, that's what we are saying. We are submitted to Christ. We are not arguing with that. So we don't question his word. We yield to his word. We do what he says we should do because we have declared that we are under his authority. So the next thing is, why should a Christian be baptized? Why should a Christian be baptized? The two reasons are one. Baptism is an act of faith. It is something we do because we believe, not necessarily because we understand it, but because we believe. We believe that Christ died and was raised up. We believe that as Christ died and was raised up, we also will die and we shall be raised up. So we get into the act. We believe, like he commanded, that we should be baptized. Let's read Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 verse 16. Mark chapter 16 verse 16. It says, he, that is the Lord Jesus says, won't speak it. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. We are baptized because we believe. It is something we do because we believe. We may not understand it. Indeed, when you're going to be baptized, you really won't understand what it is you're doing. But you do it anyway. I remember some years ago as I was teaching baptismal class and there were quite a number of mature believers. They've been Christian for years, but they had not been water baptized yet. So we began to teach them the significance of baptism and so on and so forth. When they understood, ah, that we didn't know we, we need to be baptized. So we went ahead to baptize them. Now, at the time, there was a, a baptismal class head of the department and she was the one assisting. And then when the last person had been water baptized and was leaving the water, told her, okay, let's pray and then let's go out. She said, no, you have to baptize me. I said, why? She said, now that she understands the significance, that when she first of all did it, she didn't understand that she wants to do it again with understanding this time around. So I had to put her in the water. I'm trying to tell us that sometimes the significance of water baptism does not dawn on us whilst we are doing it. It is later as we receive further teachings that we now realize the significance of water baptism. Let me just show you something real quick before I discuss the second reason. In Acts chapter 2, you realize that after the people had repented of their sins, they were baptized in water. Let me just read from verse 41. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The fact that you are water baptized does not mean that the teaching has ended. No, you are water baptized. You have been brought into the kingdom of God. You have been brought under the leadership of Christ. You have been brought to a place of commitment to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been brought through you in, in, into the union of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, you need to go through further teachings on what it is that the Lord wants us to do. That brings me to point number two. Baptism is an act of obedience to God. It is what the Lord commanded. So we do it because he commanded it. In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the Lord said, Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He told us to be baptized. So we are yielding to his command, just like he said in Mark 16, 16. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. 
It's an act of faith. It's an act of obedience. Indeed, faith and obedience are one and the same. You call them two sides of the same coin. You cannot say you have faith and not be obedient to God. And you cannot be obedient to God and not be acting out of faith. So to obey God is to act out of faith. That is why we get into baptism. You go through baptism because it's an act of faith and because it's an act of obedience, which probably explains why when we looked at the foundational doctrines of Christ, the beginning was repentance from dead works. The second thing was faith toward God. The third thing now, the doctrine of baptism. So if we have faith, we will be baptized. We will not argue with it. We will not quarrel with it. If indeed we have faith, if indeed we have repented of dead works. So let's do a brief summary and conclude for this broadcast. By the grace of God and the next broadcast, we'll elaborate more on the baptisms that we have. Christian baptism, like I said earlier, is a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth. Now, let me give an illustration that will explain it better. In Nigeria, particularly, politicians change political parties. Let's just look at a case where a politician belonged to a particular political party and ideology. And over the years, he's had cause to question the political party that he's in and the ideological principles they are working by and begins to review whether he should be in that party or he should move on. In the course of his review, he looks at another party and looks at the ideology and says, well, my ideological bent is now with this party and I'm going to change to this party. So he goes to the political party, discusses with them, says he wants to change over and they give him whatever forms they have to give him, membership and everything. He renounces this membership and moves on here. Now, usually, all that takes place in the background. Then on one particular occasion, they decide that they want to have a rally to receive new members. Now, this fellow probably was a big wig in his erstwhile political party. So he comes with maybe his followers or whatever he's coming with. And he is announced on the stage of that rally. And this man makes a big speech about how he has moved on from the former party and has come to a new party. And now he is a card carrying member and a member. He makes it a public announcement. So that is what Christian baptism is about. It is a public confessional statement that is being made concerning an action that he had taken in private. He probably got born again in private. Not many people knew he was born again. He began to walk with God. He began to study the word of God. He began to understand. And as he was studying, he realized that he needed to be baptized. So he now comes to be baptized and makes a public statement. His public statement is as follows. One, he's saying, I have left behind the bondage and servitude of slavery to sin, a type of Egypt. And I have been broken from the claws of Pharaoh, which is talking of, of Satan's oppressive leadership and authority. So he's making that statement on the day of his water baptism. He's saying, I have left behind sin. I have left behind following Satan's desires. Secondly, he's saying, I am no longer under the leadership of Satan. I am now under a new leadership, a new authority, the leadership of Christ. He's like saying, we are now under new management. So all the things that you used to see us do, in the past is gone. We are now under a new management. We are now under a new leadership, the leadership of Christ, the authority of Christ. He's also saying that I have left behind the world system and its ways of doing things. I'm no longer doing things the way the world does things. Now I am subject to a new way, the way of Christ. I'm subject to Christ and I'm subject to his way of doing things. So no more Am I interested in doing things the way the world does them? I am not interested in doing things the way Christ wants me to do them. That is the statement that we make through baptism when we go for baptism. These are the things that we are demonstrating 
publicly in the presence of witnesses that I have left bondage. I'm free from Satan's law. I'm free from sin. I've died to it. No more going back. There's a song I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It is a public thing so that everybody knows. The whole world knows. Everybody can see. In fact, I'm told that in the early days of Christianity, when Christians engaged in such things, Roman soldiers were present to take the names of those who were being baptized. Because what they were saying invariably was that they were no longer under the authority of Caesar. They were now under the authority of God. Sometimes there's a clash between civil authority and divine authority. The Bible makes us understand in Romans chapter 13, because I need to clear this. In Romans chapter 13, it makes it it makes us understand that we should submit to civil authority. But let me read it. Because there's a lot of confusion in Christendom today as to who we should listen to and who we should not listen to. And we have so many things that's happening these days and we are at a loss actually. So let me read from Romans 13 from verse 1. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Whether you believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whoever is the president is the president. It was put there by God. Whatever system you agree to, God will work with your system. So if you have a system where the president has authority over certain things, the state governor has authority over certain things, local government authorities have authority over certain things, God will work with that. You cannot, for example, say, I'm not going to listen to the state government, I'm going to listen only to the president. You can't do that. If you are within that state, you are within the territory of the authority of the state governor. So you must listen to him. He is an appointee of God. Let's read further. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. Can you imagine? Your Muslim president is a minister of God for you, a Christian. Even a Christian minister. For your own good. That's what God says. The tyrant in whatever nation is God's minister for you, the Christian. At the time this was written, Nero was in charge of Rome. He was the emperor. He was a brutal emperor. In fact, it was him that began the persecution of Christians. And the Christians submitted to the persecution. They didn't quarrel with it. I'm going to let you into something here. There's a difference between submission and obedience. You submit to authority regardless. You have to submit. It is absolute. Obedience, however, is contingent on whether it is to God or not to God. Now, this is how it works. When the government says you should do something, you submit to the authority. And by so doing, you are submitting to God's authority. But if, for example, the government asks you to do something and God asks you to do something different from what the government has asked you to do, then obedience kicks in. You must do what God is asking you to do. Now, that does not mean you will not be punished because the authority that is on earth will still exert its authority to punish you. You cannot now say you cannot be punished. No. If God is the one that told you to do it, God will defend you. God will help you. But you must submit to the authority of civil leadership. The practical example that we find in the Bible is the case of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar told them to bow. And they said, no, we're not going to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw him to fire. He said, we don't care to answer you on this matter. The God that we serve, he will deliver us. And if he doesn't deliver us, we will not bow. And so they refused to bow. And God showed himself and rescued them from the fire. But a situation where you will stand and be telling the king, who are you to put me inside fire? You don't have the right. Do you know the God? You are trying to use the name of God to intimidate people. Let us stop doing that. It doesn't speak well of Christianity. Submit to them. If God has told you to do something and you do it, and you run foul of the law, submit to the law. God will prove you right. But to use abusive language on authority is to be abusing God because he put them there. Whether they are Christians or atheists or Muslims or Hindus or Krishnas or Sikhs, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. 
in verse 4 again, it says, For he is God's minister to you for good. For if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, so that you can have a clear conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So as a Christian, yes, you are under Christ's authority. However, you submit to the authority that God has placed over you. Finally, because of all of this, Christians are therefore obligated to learn this new and living way and to live accordingly henceforth. So we find in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we teach people this new way. What is it that God is saying? For example, I just told you now that you have to obey authority. You cannot, for example, disobey your father because you are now a Christian. No, you must obey. The same thing that Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, obey your husbands, even those who don't know the word of God, that as they see the way you are behaving, they will respond to the word. So God does not have a situation where he has called us to rebel in any shape or form. No, to authority, never. Whether it is at home, in your place of work, in your country, your local government, your state government, or whatever, God has not called you to rebel against any authority whatsoever. He says, submit to them, unless he gives you a contrary thing to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, he says, And he died, that is, Christ died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You are not to live any longer for yourself. Yes, you don't live for Satan, but no longer to live for yourself. You live for Christ. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are new. Everything is new. You are now walking in a new way, in a new light, in a new realm. Different from how you walked, how you did things when you were an unbeliever. In Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 17, the Bible says, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. We have to keep learning Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You can read the rest because it now says, therefore, putting away this, let us live like this. So you are under obligation as a result of baptism to live the way Christ wants you to live. If you live the way you have been living, your life will be corrupt more and more. It gets worse every time. Things get worse. When you are living the way you want to live, things will go bad. They will go from bad to worse to worst. But when you submit yourself to the authority of Christ, you live a better life. It may not be better from the standpoint of the world, but it is the best life you can ever live when we talk of eternity. Don't forget what we said when we spoke about faith. We said the goal is salvation in eternity. And so baptism, generally speaking, 
is a situation in which we demonstrate physically something that has happened to us spiritually. We say this is what has happened to us and we demonstrate it physically. We do it publicly. It's a public confession where we are saying no more to sin. We're not interested in the way the world system works. We're not interested in the way Satan is working. We now have a new leader. We are not under new management. Christ is our new leader. The kingdom of God is the new system that we follow. And the way of Christ is what we are going to follow. We are therefore under obligation to continue to learn that way. That's why going to church is important. When we go to church, we go to learn the new way. Sadly, we hear so many things that have nothing to do with the new way. We hear so much about money, 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 money. We hear so much about becoming great, becoming great, becoming great. Those things don't help us. They're not taking us to heaven. The Bible says, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and loses his soul? What's important to God is your soul. And that you are living the way God wants you to live. By the grace of God, in our next broadcast. We shall be talking more about the four types of baptisms that we have. And then we'll probably discuss a little bit more on how they work and how we are supposed to go through it. The how, as it were, of each of the baptisms and the benefits of each one to us. Until that time, God bless you.